So official. All right. So official. You ready? Mm-hmm. All right. Welcome back to Blessing in Disguise. Uh, for this episode, as promised, we are talking about the resurrection and, side note, zombie Jesus. Um, before we get started, I wanted to jump back. In the first episode, we talked a lot about the kingdom of God, and we never actually went in to say, what do we mean when we say God? Because that's a very personal and uh, can be a very different thing for many, many people. Um, and if you're someone who doesn't necessarily believe in God, we want you to still be able to listen to this podcast and be able to interpret what we're talking about for you and your beliefs. Um, so I, I, for example, had a friend who helped walk me through a prayer, and he gave me all these different options, these different flavors that I could take uh, to understand God. Um, so for me, I like to think of it as Mother Nature, as Spirit, as um, that which understands or creates consciousness in all beings, very different elements. But that, for me, is the image I call upon when I think of God. And Laura, I don't know, for you as, as a Catholic and, and your background, is that more or less sort of how you think of it as well? Or Yeah, I think there's, you know, no evidence just, or, you know, to support that God looks like Zeus. Um, so, <laughs> so I think that, like, not imagining a dude with a beard is totally fine. And, you know, like we said last time when we talk about reign of God, we say reign and not kingdom because maybe God isn't a king or maybe God isn't a dude or maybe God doesn't, like, have a gender or whatever. So I think, you know, that's totally cool. Awesome. And this was not – we're not going to ever answer what is God, but at least uh, – Make it an option for you all to think of God, however, 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 that's not a word, however you choose. Um, so that was the nice little footnote where we covered God in two minutes, and now we're going to get right down to it. Uh, this episode, I'm really excited about because for me, this is uh, the question of Jesus and the resurrection um, seems like such a, you know, it is the ultimate divider. Do you, you do not believe Jesus rose from the dead? And of course my answer is no. Um, and (laughs) no, I do not. To be clear. Um, To be, yes. Uh, but for me it's, it, it has been this real sticking point because when I, you know, go to a service, for example, um, I've been to a lot of services over the past three years because the organization I worked for is very closely tied to the Episcopal Church in the United States. And all of our supporters, who are extraordinarily brilliant, kind, generous people, we go to services, right? And we preach and we do these things. And we sit through the service and we get to the Nicene Creed, um, which my understanding is it's kind of the one pillar that really connects all of Christian options, right? Whether you're Baptist or evangelical or, you know, you do this thing where you stand up and you say, I profess my belief that Jesus was murdered. And then three days later, he rose from the dead and he sits at the right hand of the father. And I would stand in church and I would just clamp my mouth shut and hope that no one noticed that I wasn't saying the words, but I couldn't in good conscience or good conscience, um, I couldn't say it because I I don't believe that. Um, And I guess my question now is, do all Christians seriously believe in zombie Jesus? What goes through people's heads when they say those words? Um, Because otherwise, I think other people think Christians are crazy because they believe in this dead guy who wasn't really dead. So, 
Laurel, what do you think? <laughs> well, yeah, people have a good reason to think, I think, that Christians are nuts because not only do they believe in zombie Jesus, but they, like, profess to eat his flesh on Sunday. So there's lots of questions there. <laughs> Um, the short answer is yes. Uh, the resurrection is the central point in Christian theology, and it's one of those things that doctrine says you have to believe to consider yourself Christian. Um, but I think to talk about this, we have to start with Jesus' death. And there are kind of two ways to think about it. I think the way I grew up thinking about it or the way it was explained to me, and I think the way I hear it talked about popularly is like God sent Jesus, his son, to die. And that's also part of some of the creeds. Um, and there's actually this little story that I heard at a retreat one time, either in middle school or high school, about um, this bus driver who has a bus full of kids. Um, and he's driving along the road, and all of a sudden, up ahead, there's a fence across the road. Um, and to, like, you know, on one side there's alligators, and on the other side there's fire, and, like, the people on the bus are doomed. All the kids on the bus are doomed unless the bus driver blows through the fence. And as he gets closer to the fence, he realizes that there's a little boy sitting on it. And as he gets closer and closer, he realizes that the little boy is his son. But to save all the people on the bus, he blows through the fence and kills his son to save everyone else. And that's kind of the idea of God and Jesus that we get, I think, with this God sent Jesus to die stuff. Um, so that's one way to think about like how or why Jesus died. And then another way to think about it is... Um, this more like historic point of view that Jesus died as a political criminal. Um, <clears throat> he said and did a lot of things that were very threatening to like the Jewish peace with the Roman Empire. So the Jews were a colony maybe of Rome or the, they were occupied by Rome for sure and they had to maintain peace with the Roman Empire. So the Jews wanted everything to be like totally like tranquilo, like normal, everything's good here. And so when Jesus starts like bringing up all this stuff and challenging the Sabbath and like telling women that they can participate and getting quite a following behind him. Um, it was easy. It, it was very convenient for Jewish authorities and then Roman authorities to kill him to maintain the peace. Um, how can we understand both of these things? Because they're both true. They're both affirmed by the tradition. How do we understand Jesus dying as a political criminal as God sent his son to die? Um, the way I do it for myself is like, um, Jesus is the best manifestation of like God's will for how humanity should be and the world being how it is, of course, was going to kill him. So in some ways, like God calls us to be a way that is countercultural and against the world. And so of course we will be persecuted or killed, um, so, you know, there's some bit about free will in there. There's some bit about determinism. There's some bit about, like, is God this sadistic, like, person, um, which is maybe a conversation for another time. But I think starting with why Jesus died is, like, an important part of understanding resurrection. If we understand mm -hmm. the part about Jesus being a historically uh, political criminal, then um, I think it's easier to understand the kind of resurrection I want to talk about. Yeah. And that piece about, you know, God sent his son to die, I think, We'll have an episode, as promised, about the Trinity, and that will really get us into God, the Son, and then that third bit, and how they're all the same thing. Um, but focusing on, you know, that stuff. Um, so if we understand him as a political criminal, great, but bringing us back to that really important bit about being a zombie, um, 
like I think understanding Jesus as a historical political figure where the example that we're meant to follow is one of revolution and counterculturalism, culturalism, is that a word? Um, that's something that people can totally get behind. I think the real sticking point is that his body magically disappeared from the tomb. So how, you know, if we get behind that at least historical element of it, how do we then as, you know, secular postmodern science believing rational millennials or older folks um understand or how could we understand that whole resurrection piece because it seems like it's a big deal sure i would say there's quite a tendency to understand it as allegory or as myth um i remember like being a teenager like really wondering if i could believe this thing about um, Jesus actually being raised from the dead, because I was told that I had to believe that if I was going to be Christian. And so I think at that point, I ended up as like, oh, this is a story that's supposed to teach us that Jesus was a good guy whose example we should follow. Um, you know, like, there, here's this myth about how Jesus was raised from the dead. And what they mean to say is like, God had his back, and that's what we should do, you know. Um, but I really actually think that resurrection is kind of more literal than that even though I've come to understand it in a different way. And this is something that I totally owe to El Salvador and the base communities there. Um, if we take the example of Monsignor Oscar Romero, Oscar Romero, who was beatified in 2015 by the Catholic Church, um, he was an archbishop in the, between 1977 and 1980, and he was killed while celebrating Mass um, because of his option for the poor and disenfranchised of El Salvador. Um, he's a figure, you know, there, Ignacio Ayacuria, one of the Jesuit theologians at the UCA, at the University of Central America at the time, said, with Monsignor Romero, God passed through El Salvador, which you could say about Jesus. Jesus passed through Jerusalem, um, and that was God. Um, so equating Romero with Jesus is a pretty common thing. And I think the post-martyrdom of Romero is probably very similar to Jesus's and by understanding Romero I like came to understand the Jesus story in a different way so after Romero was killed you know the people who assassinated him the government agents that assassinated him um, wanted to silence him but what happened is it ended up being a megaphone people ended up taking on Romero's prophetic activities and Romero's work on behalf of the poor and marginalized and continue talking about him today I would argue, way much more than they would if he hadn't been killed. So in that sense, they resurrected Romero by carrying on his work and carrying on his legacy of giving a voice to the disenfranchised. Um, and so that's maybe a very general example. Uh, maybe a more personal example for me is a story of another priest who was killed in El Salvador in 1979. His name was Octavio Ortiz. And um, I actually worked with his youngest sister, Anita, for the time I was there. And um, Anita was five, maybe, when Octavio left to go study to be a priest. So she didn't really know her brother. And he ended up going into San Salvador, and he worked with urban parishes who were forming base communities, um, really working with young people around issues of vocation, around issues of um, how do we live as Jesus did in our day? And he was also killed. He was hosting a vocational retreat for young people when a government tank uh, ran over the door to the compound. He came out to see what was going on. They shot him and ran over his head with the tank. Um, so Anita never really knew her brother. Anita never really knew Octavio, never really knew what he was like until she also moved into the city and started meeting the people that had known him and were carrying on his work. 
And now on the anniversary of Octavio's martyrdom, Anita is asked to talk about her brother and tell about his work and how what he was like and what he did. And she does a stand-up job. You know, I would argue that she knows her brother now. And so that's mm. a pretty literal understanding of resurrection, that a younger sister could know her older brother who was killed by these, you know, very evil motives. Um, mm. So my understanding of resurrection has maybe become a little more literal just because of my experience around those kinds of stories. But that still feels to me something that doesn't require, you know, forgetting third grade biology class, right? <laughs> like, you know, that understanding of resurrection is, to me, something that is deeply spiritual. And it says, it, it gives us a little bit of agency, right? Like someone passes away and if there is an element of them that you feel is really important to hold on to, and they don't, you know, I think of my grandmother, for example, she was this woman who didn't do anything extraordinary in terms of historical impact, but she was incredibly kind and she had this huge ripple effect and she just said, be kind, that's what matters. And, you know, that's the part we try to hold on to. And maybe if I'm in a position where someone's being a jerk, like, well, what would grandma do? You know, and, and that agency of in this small way, I am resurrecting Lucille Palm Smoot. Um, you know, I think one, it feels a little less passive. It feels believable to me and personal. And it gives me a way to actively celebrate people who are gone. Um, so that, I, I like your interpretation, Laurel. <laughs> totally. And, and the doctrine of resurrection says that we're all called to resurrection, that we will all be resurrected at the end time, which we talked about last time, you know, we will all be resurrected. And I think like, God and the mysteries of God are always kind of beyond our reach. We don't really have an accurate way of describing them, so we use what language and stories we have. So this deal of resurrection is the best we can do to say that, like, your grandmother is still alive when you make the concrete historical choice to be kind to someone as opposed to backhanding them. Mm -hmm. Which is just so natural otherwise. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It's a little um, brick towards the reign of God, if you will. Yeah, 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 yeah. So if we think about Octavio and we think about Romero and we think about, you know, Grandma Smoot, um, that intentionality of remembering them and holding onto their memory as a way of giving back or a resurrecting act, you know, that's a very intentional thing. And I think that's what martyrs accomplish. But in secular society, we don't have martyrs. We don't, um, you know, do that on a regular basis. We don't have a structure like church that calls us to remember people in that way. And if we do remember them, for me, it feels really shallow, right? Whether they be, you know, people like Che Guevara or Martin Luther King, we've really romanticized them to the point where the real gritty meat of their message in many ways is lost, right? And so Che is just that guy with the beret that you put on your bumper sticker. Um, you know, we have the institu institutionalization where remembering them, I think, could be said of the church in the case of Jesus, is this thing where you just go on Sunday, you repeat the stuff, you sing along, and then you leave. That's a really, you know, extreme negative version, but that is, I think, one way to think about it. And then you have commodification, you know, St. Nicholas, St. Valentine. We, in general, just tend to go and buy chocolates or buy things for other people. And that's how we remember these folks who, and I had to do this because I had to look them up on Google because I had no idea why they were martyrs, um, were really, truly revolutionary figures. And so is this romanization, commodification, is that a result of having lost this tradition of celebrating martyrs as they were? I guess what went wrong and, and is there a way to bring back that true celebration of revolutionary figures as they were? 
Hmm, that is an excellent question. <laughs> I think, you know, like in the case of St. Nick or St. Valentine, like their presence in our culture right now is purely commercial, I w- you know, pretty much. I don't know what the story yeah. of St. Nick is or of St. Valentine. And, you know, I think the fact that we still say their names is pretty, uh, that's a victory for like the people who saw what they did and supported them. But martyrs are often killed or marginalized or whatever for having some sort of like prophetic anti-cultural message. So it's always uncomfortable and it's something the system wants to tamper down. So like example, you brought up MLK, like usually when we learn about MLK in schools, um, we focus on the I have a dream Martin Luther King and not the Martin Luther King who wrote the letter from a Birmingham jail. And, you know, a quote from that letter is, one has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. And that's something really crazy for law and order. So um, we tend to remember the convenient aspects of these people so that the people who want to remember them are placated, but we're not really continuing to question ourselves or put the system in danger. Even focusing only on MLK and not Malcolm X or the Black Panther movement is a way of, you know, making the history of civil rights in the U.S. way more comfortable and much less threatening to the status quo. And so what that's called in theology for the saints is hagiography. That's the study of the saints or the writing of the stories of the saints. And so stories get distorted. Um, some examples, again, to take up Romero, his his current process, he's been beatified. He hasn't been canonized yet. So he's called Blessed Oscar Romero, not yet Saint Oscar Romero. But there was a song that they made for his beatification. Um, and we'll play maybe a little piece of it here. Romero nos abrió las puertas al amor. civilización donde la vida se entrega porque vale la pena nadie le fue indiferente a su paso entre la gente y aunque fue querido al mundo dio un río and the the chorus or the end part of the song says Romero a martyr for love And it's kind of a way of like watering down Romero. Of course, he loved in this very active and opting for the poor way. Um, But it wasn't just like he was this lovey-dovey guy. That doesn't get anybody killed. Um, The real miracle of Romero was his life and his option and not, you know, whatever like healing thing that they'll bring out for the miracle you need to get someone canonized, you know. So there's just a lot of watering down that goes on with, with revolutionary figures in their hagiography. Um, And in the case of Jesus, early Christians certainly were persecuted, and that didn't end until Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire in the 4th century. You know, Constantine went into battle under a flag with a cross on it. And that's pretty, that's not even watered down Jesus, that's opposite Jesus. So, um, yeah, I think it's totally true that secular culture or power structures in general tend to water down these revolutionary figures and you often have to look to the bottom or to the margins to get the real story yeah which it seems again you know we mentioned this in the the reign of god podcast episode last time but i mean that to me really feels like an individual responsibility that we all have it would be really nice if hallmark were to you know next christmas 
write up a different card that said, well, actually, St. Nicholas was well known for giving away all of his money to poor people <laughs> and not just passing around Toyota cars. But um, Oh, but think how uncomfortable that would make your grandma at Christmas. Not your well, grandma, I guess, but... Right. Yeah, she's she's dead now, but... Um, no, I, I totally... I mean, there is this... It's amazing to me how powerful discomfort is as a force to counter revolution or to counter uh, counterculture movements in general. And, and, you know, those two elements, right? First, make people uncomfortable, and the other is water down everything. So, And when we think about martyrs and i guess this goes to to my next question as well you know really what would it look like if we were to revive these folks pun totally intended and <laughs> and really reclaim the values that they stood for and including the the really uncomfortable pieces to fully understand who these people were were historically within a contemporary secular society um you know, I, when you say water down i think of the environmental movement when we look at green products, right? There's this total greenwashing, similar to whitewashing, where it's like, oh, you want to appease your conscience? Well, buy this slightly greener product as opposed to really questioning the, you know, we say the system a lot, but in this case, the capitalist system that says you can buy your way out of an insane, an unsustainable society, which is ludicrous. Totally. But if, as long as we hide the ludicrousness and make people feel better in the process, we're good. Um, but we don't see people like Berta Cáceres. When, I, when we think about martyrs, contemporary martyrs, the first person who comes to mind for me is Berta Cáceres, who um, was a woman in Honduras. Her The anniversary of her death just passed. Um, and she was a very well-known environmentalist in the region. She represented the indigenous communities in Honduras, and she was very active in the anti-mining movement in Central America. And she was murdered. Um, and there was a recent Guardian article that shows that her murder was actually linked to the training of U.S. military forces. So this is uh, something that's deeply uncomfortable for a lot of people for a lot of reasons. Um, and there's this massive effort, in the most cases by very small social movements, be the indigenous movement in these various countries. A few people are picking it up on social media in the United States. Um, but people who are really saying, we need to keep Berta as she is alive. And what she would want is for her death to be investigated. She would not want her movement to die. Um, and there's this real opportunity for Berta to be a true catalyst for everything that she stood for. Um, I'm sure she'll get watered down in other ways. But you know, that for me is really exciting, right? And what would happen if she truly got to live on, if she was resurrected in a way? Totally. And I think Berta Cáceres is a great like modern day example of what resurrection means. We're still so close to her death. It was in March of 2016 that we still have access to the real her. We still have access to her daughters who are speaking out. And in Latin America in general, there's this very strong culture of what is called memoria histórica, historic memory. There's really not a good translation. And it's something that actually grew out of liberation theology and these, these people who were killed in the 60s, 70s, 80s for standing up for justice movements. Um, Romero, Octavio Ortiz, Rutilio Grande, all of these people, um, remembering them and saying their names and bringing them up is um, 
is memoria histórica. And a parallel that I see here in the U.S., I keep saying say their names, and that's become a hashtag for the Black Lives Matter movement and the victims of police brutality here in the U.S. Um, you know, remembering the names of people like Trayvon Martin, Michael Ferguson, Tamir Rice, Eric Garner, Sandra Bland, and, you know, people even going back to Emmett Till, going back to Malcolm X, going back to people who for so long have struggled against police brutality in the U.S., who have struggled against violence, you know, racial-based violence in general. Um, there's a lot of wisdom there about remembering who these people were and what their real story is and why they were killed. Um, so yeah, I see a lot of similar tendencies in between all of those things. We're talking about the environmental movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, um, Memoria Historica in Latin America in general. It is this like uh, new understanding and a new vocabulary for what I think resurrection is trying to say. Yeah. I just have a question because I'm curious. So, mm -hmm. you know, imagining us sitting down over vegetable cheesecake and wine. Um, I think what for me is really notable and just the, the examples that we've mentioned, the historical martyrs that we've referred to, Romero, Octavio, Jesus, <laughs> um, <laughs> come from the Christian tradition. But the real powerful contemporary martyrs have for the most part been secular, right? Berta, Black Lives Matter. Um, and... I don't want to let the church off the hook, basically. I think Pope Francis is setting an extraordinary example, right? And there's this huge resurgence among young people who really, truly admire Pope Francis. Um, but that goes with the deep skepticism of will the institution let him transform the church, right? Is there a way that the institutionality that has grown up around, especially the Catholic church, but the, the real power structures that exist, um, as a result of this massive legacy of Christian domination, is there hope for the Christian institution to be able to return to and truly live out the resurrection of Jesus and even the way that they function and operate? Um, there was this really fun example during Hurricane Sandy, or Irene, sorry, Irene, that hit the East Coast a couple years ago. And um, you know, all the hipsters from Brooklyn basically went out to Long Island and they knocked on the church doors and they said, hey, I know you're not really open on Sunday, but we need you to open your doors up and we need to store canned food here. We've got families who need a place to stay. And isn't this really what you're about? And there was this real challenge from young people who don't identify as Christian or even identify as Jews or Hindus or Buddhists or Muslims who were basically saying, wake up, right? Like, here's your call. It's happening right now. Go, go out into the streets and, and um, live your Christian doctrine, not on Sunday, um, and I, I'm not saying that that's the way it is, that, you know, people go to church, just go to church. But what's exciting about it for me is that then church became this thing that was exercised or lived by both Christian folks and secular folks. Um, and that was this nice little microcosm example. Is there a chance that that would then get bigger? Totally. Um, it's reminding me a lot of this phrase that Karl Rahner uses, who is a Jesuit theologian from the 60s. Um, and he talks about this idea of the anonymous Christian. And it's something that shows up in the Chronicles of Narnia in like C.S. Lewis's fiction Christian thing. Um, about, I'm so glad like, you mentioned the Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> it's my favorite. Um, yes. You know, the anonymous Christian is the person who works for the reign of God without knowing what that is, just because of natural law and secular humanism, understanding that like the common good is important and that we all have a right to dignified life. Um, so I think, first of all, like definitely all of these people are working towards like a good thing and and 
Christians should <laughs> feel totally free and inclined to join up with them and not have to take it over and call it Christian necessarily, but just like join up with people who are doing good stuff. Also, you know, it should be pretty shameful that uh, we've kind of lost track of that. Um, there's this pretty popular, there's like a song that has this verse in it it's from the Bible. It says, um, "You, they'll know you're Christians by our love. And so love does that. And this is, you know, back to Romero saying he's a martyr for love. Is it kind of a make you feel good kind of love or is it an uncomfortable kind of love? Um, mm-hmm. People should under should know that we're Christians because we're working towards the reign of God. When all of the secular people are doing that and Christians aren't, I think that's a real call to Christianity to kind of step it up. I think Francis is doing a good job, but one person isn't going to change everything. So I think, you know, that's a conversation, certainly in this political climate that's being had at churches or is not being had at churches because they've always, already decided one way or the other. But, um, yeah, that's that's a really good uh, understanding and explanation of kind of what's going on with uh, uh, ethical, like, social justice work right now. Yeah. If it's cool by you, I might um, end with a quote from Romero about the violence of love. Yeah, 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 yeah. That might be a good way to to close this out. Um, And so just as a way to really reframe the way we think about love, not as the hallmark St. Valentine version, but the real St. Valentine and Romero, Berta Carceres, or Say Their Names version, um, Romero said, We have never preached violence except the violence of love which left Christ nailed to a cross, the violence that we must each other do to ourselves to overcome our selfishness and such cruel inequalities among us. The violence we preach is not the violence of the sword, the violence of hatred. It is the violence of love, of brotherhood, the violence that wills to beat weapons into sickles for work. Yeah, and I think it's that same kind of love that resurrects people. Yeah. All right. Well... I think we've done as much damage as we could hope to do. (laughs) Yeah, looks good. (laughs) At least for a 25-minute episode. (laughs) Cool. Awesome. Um, So we always have an invitation to you all. Again, remember to follow us on Facebook, on SoundCloud. Um, Please, again, send in your questions, your comments. And thank you for listening. We're really grateful to you all for uh, spending this much time listening to two people throw around some ideas. Yep. Thanks so much, Anna. Pleasure talking to you. Yeah. Ditto. I'll talk to you later. Have a good evening.